Hey there, art lovers. Mike Hendley here, and I'm excited to welcome you to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast. In each episode, I'll be bringing you along on my journey as I explore what it means to be an artist. But don't worry, it's not just going to be me talking about my favorite tools and sketchbooks the whole time. I'll be chatting with other talented artists about their experiences and sharing some of my own insights and reflections on my art journey. So come on in, get comfortable, and let's get inspired together. Episode 98, The World of Urban Sketching, Architecture, Art, and Travel with Stephanie Bauer. Hi everyone and welcome back. Just a few really quick updates and we'll head right into that interview. So I mentioned in a previous episode, I did a etcher class where I taught you how to draw a bullfrog (laughs) with pencil. And it was about 90 minutes long. It is available if you are interested. I'll provide a link in the show notes to that. But I wanted to share as well that there is a new course coming later this fall. And I've agreed with Etcher to do this one. This is going to be more of an intermediate course. It's going to be six to seven weeks. So that's six to seven classes. And of course, I'm going to have a little bit of homework with each class and hopefully an opportunity to um, to interact with you via feedback, maybe as a final session. We'll have to see how that all pans out. But I'm really excited about this kind of multi-week approach to drawing. So I would recommend checking out Tina Hotchkiss's course uh, that she's starting shortly or has started on drawing. It's a beginner course and it is a great kind of starting point. And then from that, you could end up joining my course in the fall. So I'm really looking forward to this. I'm going to be doing a few more courses, both inside the Etcher platform and outside the platform around drawing, but also watercolor and some of the other mediums I'm playing with. So there's still more to come with that. And I'm also speaking at a conference in the fall, but I'll share more details about that as uh, they become available. So exciting to see how Elevate as my theme for 2023 is coming uh, to fruition and having that kind of front of mind is is helpful in trying to make my decisions as I move through this year. So So we're only two episodes away from 100. So I am excited about that 100th episode. I'll be reflecting kind of on 100 episodes. (laughs) I'm not going to cover them all, but kind of talking through what I've learned, uh, hearing from past guests, as well as some of you. And so if you haven't submitted an audio clip, and quite a few of you have, feel free to do so through the SpeakPipe app which is built onto the contact page of drawinginspiration.fm. I will include a link in the show notes to that. Alternatively, you can record an audio clip on your phone or whatever device, and you can send it to me by email. It is mike at mikehendley, that's H-E-N-D-L-E-Y dot com. So I encourage you to talk about your favorite episode, maybe something you've learned, maybe uh, something I said or shared uh, inspired you to do something special. And so reflect on the last four years and share your thoughts with me. Try and keep it around three minutes and let me know your Instagram and I'll put that in the show notes and I will share a select few of these uh, audio clips as part of the podcast as well. So looking forward to hear what you have to say. I'm going to put a deadline of May 15th. So that gives me time to work through it for the May 29th episode, which will be episode 100. And I do have an exciting episode coming up for 99 as well. And so thank you once again for everyone for being part of this journey. We actually are celebrating four years of the podcast on May 6th is when I started it back four years ago, but uh, we're going to save the official celebration or acknowledgement of 100 episodes for May 29th, which will be episode 100. So I'm looking forward to that. As a matter of uh, work, I haven't done a whole lot of drawing and painting in the last two weeks, and I feel really bad, so I'm, I'm adjusting that, but there's been so many other things going on. I did have an opportunity to paint a little sea turtle 
in my Etcher A6 hot press sketchbook. And I saw this photographer, his name, his Instagram name is Alex, A-L-E-K-S, mutated on Instagram. I'll include a link to him in the show notes. So he has these wonderful photos of sea turtles, both in the water and on the beach. And I reached out to him and asked if I could use a couple. And he's like, yeah, for sure. And I love your podcast and I'm trying to draw every day as well. So it was a really fantastic opportunity to connect with another creative at that level. Piece I created was based off of one of his reference photos. And uh, I'm probably going to do a few more because I just love baby sea turtles. And it was, uh, you know, I worked on a larger, I kind of filled the page, which was different. It was the first time I think I've done sky with watercolor. And so it's these kind of incremental things that I'm trying to do, moving my uh, creative journey forward and trying new things and challenging myself. And so I think I'm going to do a few more of these. I'm also going to do them at a larger scale rather than the A6 and see where that takes me. So I hope that you're challenging yourself and trying new things as you continue on your journey as well. So I think that's it for updates. As I mentioned earlier, trying to keep it short for this week. So we have a wonderful long form (laughs) episode with Stephanie Bauer. So let's head right into it. Stephanie Bauer is known to many urban sketchers for her exceptional watercolor renderings, pencil sketches, and concept design drawings. Stephanie has worked with many well-known architectural firms and offices in the Pacific Northwest and beyond. But Stephanie's journey in the world of urban sketching started with a devastating event that would change her life forever. She shares how she moved forward from there by finding the courage to walk through doors when they open. Combining her skills as an architect, artist, and teacher, Stephanie is passionate about passing on her knowledge and skills through architectural sketching workshops offered both locally and internationally. We will explore Stephanie's tools and materials and chat about her new book, The World of Urban Sketching, Celebrating the Evolution of Drawing and Painting on Location Around the Globe. To talk about her creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast, Stephanie Bauer. Hi, Stephanie. How are you? Hi, Mike. I'm doing very well. Thank you. It's a little early here in Seattle, so I hope I'll be coherent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you will. I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, so early on a weekend uh, to join the podcast, and I'm looking forward to uh, to talking with you about your journey, your new book, The uh, the World of Urban Sketching. that has been out for a little while, but I'd love to explore that a bit deeper and understand your story, because your name has come up so many times in conversations I've had with other guests. Uh, when we talk about urban sketching, it's uh, Stephanie Bauer is always there in the background. I know I've spoken to some urban sketchers locally in my city, and it's it's always there. And I thought, you know, it's about time I get you on. I saw your book came out, and I was thinking, I need to get you on to find out about your journey, because I love where you came from. I love what you're doing now. And the fact that you have an interesting day job that ties so conveniently to your the urban sketching and the work that you're doing. And so I kind of want to explore all of that. So I'm so thankful that you made time on a weekend to, uh, to join me. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. It's a wonderful opportunity to uh, to meet you and to talk with other people, sort of. <laughs> and I saw that you were down in California, and you had a picture with Captain Tom, who was a mm-hmm. guest here previously as well. And it was just wonderful to see that. It was it, it felt like I saw family getting together because uh, <laughs> I knew you were coming. Nice. And so it was cool. Well, I'm on a quest to get um, all 156 uh, contributors to this new book, uh, get them to sign my book. So <laughs> wow, <laughs> <laughs> I have, have a, a few countries still to visit. But yeah, he's incredible. I'm a huge fan of his work. He's uh, fast. I, I love his style. He's so talented. 
Yeah, he was he was a lot of fun. It was the I think one of only two podcasts I did in person, and we did it in the in the front of my pickup truck. Uh, and, that's uh, awesome! That was a lot of fun. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> so I want to understand about you because I I always like to do this. I think it's so much fun to find where people come from because I think we may be surprised. We see these wonderful these wonderful pieces of art that people produce, and we may be surprised at what point they fell into art or, or that art took over their life. And I always like to understand that journey. So Stephanie, for you, when did you identify as a creative? I mean, we all did that as a kid, but were you the creative kid? Were, the, were you the artsy kid? Not really. I never took art in high school. But if they gave us an option to, you know, write three pages of of information or do this one drawing. I would always opt to do the one drawing. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I really learned how to draw, at least in perspective, in architecture school. And I was maybe a junior in high school and trying to figure out what I wanted to study in college. And I had a boyfriend who said he wanted to be an architect. And I thought, oh, an architect. Yeah, that would combine art and math. That's That's kind of what I wanted. So... I got it in my head to go to architecture school. My mom had over for dinner the one architect that she knew. And within about 10 minutes of talking with him, he had me in tears because he was discouraging me from going. Oh, no. Yes. So uh, I was you know, depressed about it for a bit. And then I thought, oh, what does he know? <laughs> so I, Good on you, you know, I was a junior in high school. Who listens to adults at that point? So, right. um so I went on ahead to architecture school and really loved it and, and just uh, Im- was immediately immersed in it. And it's a five-year program at the University of Texas at Austin. And I, I took drawing classes, but there was one in particular, my third year of architecture school, that uh, became the foundation for my way of drawing and my way of teaching. I've expanded on it and adapted adapted from it, but it was a fabulous class. But I have to also add that, you know, I had already invested invested three years in architecture school. All my friends had one more year to go. I had two more years to go. And we were required to submit a portfolio of work for three professors to review and comment on and essentially pass you on to the fourth year. You could fail or pass this portfolio review. And of the three professors who looked at my work, two of them wrote weak graphic skills. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So I was depressed about that as well. And then I thought, well, maybe I should... um, go to graphic, switch to graphic design or something. And then yet again, I was like, well, what do they know? And so I just decided to, to go with it. And I, I was taking this, this class and it was taught by a man named George Fialva. And he was an ex-Marine and he ran his class a little like <laughs> Marine boot camp. But it, he was a fabulous teacher. He taught me how to see perspective in the world around us and uh, and very quick ways to kind of get the essentials down on paper. And I ended up getting the highest grade he ever get, gave. I took that class the last semester he ever taught it. And I went on to graduate at the top of my class of architecture wow. school. So fooey to that architect who tried to discourage me from going. <laughs> That's so disappointing. Do you, do you think it was a scenario with kind of the old guard, the old yes. men in 
in that kind of environment? Do you think that was? Yes, I do. Yeah, that's yeah unfortunate. I, I don't yeah. think you liked it, the idea of women in architecture. I don't know if you thought we couldn't handle it. When, when I was in architecture school, I think, I mean, it's a state school, so it probably had a higher percentage of women than other programs, but I think we were 25 to 30% of the class, which is, was pretty good. Now it's much higher. Yeah, and it, it, you still have the problem with the old guard, right? Until they start uh, retiring, <laughs> well, sometimes it doesn't leave opportunity for some of the others. But I think architecture is probably a bit easier, right, to go out on your own. And well, the old guard in architecture is is much, uh, you know, much more understanding now than they were years ago. When I first started uh, working as an architect in New York City, I do remember attending meetings where I was representing the architect. Okay, I was young, but and a woman, but still and and being completely ignored. And I remember that feeling vividly and it was uh infuriating. I I hated not being seen or not being listened to. So yeah, uh, you know, but things are are much better now and women are are working their way into ownership and partnerships and uh, in firms and have a, a much, uh, much stronger voice and participation in the in the field, which is fantastic. It is fantastic, and fooey on them, those people that gave you a hard time, right? So it's. Yeah. Uh, I wish I could show them my books. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And, and I'm sure there's still some of that, but I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's changed and changing. Mm-hmm. Um, I work in health research, and I know that it's it takes much more time just because of the people in research for so many years. You know, if you're a problem, you're a problem there for 20, 30, 40 oh, years. No. Uh, so it, it does, the, the change takes longer, but I'm glad to hear that because that was my immediate thought when you were saying that. I've got two daughters, mm. uh, and so my immediate thought with them is how challenging is it going to be? into the profession you decide to go into mm-hmm. because of because of things like that. So I'm always mindful and and uh, so I'm glad that you got to where you are because this is where you should be. And yes, they should see your books. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah. I wish that would that would be that would be very nice. <laughs> but you know, in a way, they're I mean, not so much the architect that I talked to before going to architecture school, but the uh, the comments that I got uh, with that portfolio review really kind of fueled the fire. So in a way, maybe they helped me because I, um, I mean, maybe this is kind of looking at the cup half full instead of the cup half empty, but, mm-hmm. but I do think they kind of fueled something in me that stirred something that got me going. And I felt like I had something to prove. And, um, so yeah, I hope your daughters will have that quality too. Oh, I think they do, because <laughs> they exercise it at home all the time. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. Well done, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Dad, I disagree with you. You are stupid today, so I, I, I am right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's 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 all good, and I did the same thing, and I probably did it worse. Yeah, I think it's it's wonderful. I think there's obviously much more opportunity. And things like, when it comes to art, is it's it's everywhere now it feels like mm-hmm. when i was growing up that art creativity graphic design like that wasn't a thing at all it was be- and i was in a blue collar family but it feels like it's everywhere now so there's m- so many opportunities there's industries that didn't exist mm-hmm. there's opportunities around um engaging 
art and drawing and painting and what you do. I, I went in and I said this in a recent podcast, but I taught you know young kids in my daughter's class how to draw because I think being able to draw you don't that doesn't have to be you don't have to be an artist where to have a profession where drawing's a benefit. Mm-hmm. And whether it's a researcher showing your ideas or doing an investigation of an accident scene or whatever, being able to draw is an important skill to have. And I think uh, creativity has an opportunity in this current society that we're in well, more than it ever has. That's so true. That's very well said. Um, I mean, drawing teaches us to see better. So, you know, anything that that would encourage a, a deeper understanding of something you see or do is is great. And drawing certainly does that. You know, it's funny, I was thinking a little bit about my trajectory. After after architecture school, I did uh, travel and sketch a little bit, but then I stopped for like 25 years. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I was working as an architectural illustrator, so which has a similar skill set, but not an identical skill set. And I'm self-taught in watercolor. So I stopped for like 25 years, and then... I have a whole story. I don't know how much time you have here, but I have it's, a whole It's story. your show. <laughs> I've never <laughs> Go with the story. I've never really talked about this story very much and um but I'll maybe I'll I'll do it briefly. Um in the year 2000, my uh my family went to, on a trip to Hawaii. We came back uh, the day I the afternoon we got back. I uh, got a call from my dear friend and neighbor across the street. Uh, that who was a flight attendant for Alaska Airlines, that they were going to um, do a last-minute trip to Mexico and use their buddy passes that she gets by being a flight attendant. And so I ran over and gave her all my sunscreen and bug spray and kissed them all goodbye, and, and, then, uh, and then off they went. I actually heard them leave because uh, uh, the sound of the cars woke me up in the middle of the night as they were going to the airport. And they, so the following Monday, I think it was, I I was taking my kids to, to something and then driving home. And I, we pull up in front of the house and my neighbor comes running out to the car. Boy, I am really going into the weeds on this one. This is gonna might take okay. a little while. You might need to do some editing. <laughs> but my neighbor comes running out to the car with this look of panic on her face. And I roll down the window, and she looks at me and screams, where did Sarah go? And I said, to Puerto Vallarta. And she just turned white. Her, their plane crashed off the coast of Southern California, and the entire family was lost. In fact, 10 people from our neighborhood were lost on that flight. Oh, my. And to this day, it is the most traumatic event of my life, and it didn't even happened to me, but I had post-traumatic stress for months and would wake up in the middle of the night and look for their car on the street. And it was just a really, really intense, a terrible loss of a beautiful family. And, uh, but our, and, and they were kind of the center of this whole neighborhood group and a group of friends, I should say. And, so we decided, as, a, as this group of friends, we decided to renovate the playground and the park that was near our house that they went to with their kids all the time. And I decided, well, I like doing community service kinds of things, and I have a background as an architect. I'll, I'll take on the managerial role. And one of the people who came and volunteered 
was my friend Sarah's father-in-law, Ralph Pearson. And he, he always had, you know, a big hug for everybody. And, you know, we all cried together and he was really a wonderful man. And he would, one of the things he would do is every Christmas he would come around with a gift for, for our kids. So, you know, one year he comes around and he has a gift and I, you know, thank you, Ralph. This is really lovely. Should I open it now? He said, why don't you wait and open it on Christmas? So Christmas morning, we're opening gifts. We kind of take turns and I open it up and it's uh, like a Hickory Farms set of cheese and salami kind of thing. And and a card. And I open up the card and I look at the card and I stopped breathing. And the whole family looked up. And my older son, who was, I don't know, five or six, six, maybe at the time, comes around and looks over my shoulder and says, wow, mama, that's a $1,000 check. And I said, no, Nicholas, that is a $10,000 check. And he gave me $10,000. Wow. I called him later that day. I mean, I was stunned. I was just wrecked after that. And I said, is, you know, is this for the park? Do you want this to go to the park? And he said, no, this is for you. I've thought about it for a long time. And I want this to go to you to do something special for yourself. So I debated whether or not I should deposit it. Um, it turns out it was a cashier's check, so it was like cash. And I um, deposited it in, into a new account at my husband's suggestion, so it didn't end up going toward groceries. Uh, so it was in its own account. And then I thought for a couple of years, what can I do to honor my friends, this extraordinary gift? And what came to mind was a sketching trip. And I thought, you know, for my 50th birthday, I kind of wanted to do a a sketching trip somewhere. And I thought about maybe going to Italy or something like that. I just, I wanted to pick it up again. And we had a friend who came over to the house for dinner and she was lamenting that her friend that was going to go with her on a trip to India had canceled on her. And my husband says, why don't you ask Stephanie if she wants to go? So she did. And I thought about it. And I thought at one point, you know, this is kind of how I thought I was honoring my friend Sarah. I thought, you know, when a door opens, I need to be courageous enough to go through it. And I hadn't thought about going to India. My parents lived in India before I was born, and I was almost born there. And I thought, you know, this would be an amazing adventure to take uh, and to use this, this gift on doing something like this. So I went with her to India and filled two large Moleskine sketchbooks, came back, went to my first Urban Sketchers uh, gathering in Seattle, and afterwards was talking with a couple of people who are architects, and one of them said, you know, you should enter the K-Rob competition. And I was like, what's that? How can I be an illustr architectural illustrator and not know what the K-Rob competition is? So I looked it up when I got home. I submitted one of my sketches from India, and it won for best wow. travel sketch. And that launched just like a, had a domino effect on all these wonderful things that started happening. The opportunity to study in Paris, uh, do drawings in Paris for three months through the uh, fellowship I got called the Gabriel Prize. 
then a, a two-month fellowship to Italy, then a uh, then Gabby Campanario says to me one day, you know, you should write a book. Do you want me to connect you with my editor? And I, you know, picked my jaw off the ground and <laughs> and kind of nodded yes in, in, in shock. And that happened. That turned into the second book and then a third book. I met Paul Heaston and uh, that turned into uh, filming classes for Craftsy. And it just became this amazing, beautiful wave that continues to this day and it all goes back to Ralph Pearson and I'm going to grab my copy of the book if I can. All right I didn't have it ready because I didn't know I was going to tell this story but at the back of the perspective book it says I'm going to tear up on this and finally deepest as is in the on the acknowledgments page on the last page of the book and finally, deepest thanks to Ralph Pearson, whose just generosity sparked these sketching adventures and changed my life. That's awesome. Yeah, that's my that's my story. That's how I got here. That's <laughs> you awesome. You wanted to know how I got here. That's the full story. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Uh, what do you think Sarah would say about where you are now? Oh, you do want to make me cry. <laughs> like, do you think about that now? Do you think when you travel, when you get on a plane, when you're doing what you're doing? Does it, it feels right, right? Like it feels... I do. You know, in particular, when I get on a plane, and in particular, when I fly Alaska Airlines, because, yeah, every, every time, I, I mean, it, it changed my life in every way, that gift from, from Ralph. And it, it, I mean, there's so many lessons in it. One was to, if, when a door opens, go through it. You know, when it, if don't even, you know, think about it for like five seconds and then just do it. And also like the worst tragedy in my life. Um, and I've lost both my parents, but, and you know, I still like that, that crash was tops everything, but it turned the worst, worst event in my life to, to something that's changed my life, you know, incredibly for the better so it turned something horrible into something really good I mean it's still horrible and um but but yeah these opportunities that came about as a result of that unbelievably generous gift but it's it's not even so much about the money it was sort of like giving me permission to do things that was um it was really the the gift Yeah, I think that's what happens with a lot of creatives, and many creatives I've had on here have a full-time job. And I think many of them, including myself, struggle with that permission. Do you have permission to get up and draw or paint today? Do you have permission to to spend the evening drawing or painting while your spouse or your partner is doing something else Mm -hmm. with the kids or doing something else? And, um, you know, we all do this for our own reasons, and I'm I'm glad you shared yours. That's that's something difficult to share, but Mm -hmm. I think this is what people need to hear it's our reason. So it's the right reason. We don't all all have to do it for, you know, because we want to make a living at it or because of whatever, because we have a degree in it or whatever the case. We all have our own reasons. And um, yours is Mm -hmm. extremely special. And I'm I'm glad you shared it here. Thank you. You know, I feel a little like the Marie Kondo of urban sketching or something. You know, it should spark joy. And if it sparks joy, (laughs) then, then do it. And that's something, you know, for years now, even before I worked on this book, this recent book, 
I would ask people when I traveled, like, why do you do this? Why do you sketch? You know, why is there this compulsion, this uh, sometimes obsession uh, to, to do this urban sketching? And I started to hear similar stories from people, including stories from people who suffered from depression and really struggled uh, with aspects of their life and for them urban sketching was a lifesaver. I mean they literally use those words and uh, you know there's something physically about doing it as like a form of meditation that makes you feel feel better and also feels like you've accomplished something and then part of the beauty of urban sketchers is you're part of a much bigger community. It could be a local community, it could be an online community, it could be a global community of of instant friends who are welcoming and non-judgmental and understanding and enthusiastic about about what they're what they're doing and uh, their sketching and their art and I mean it, it's it's brilliant. It's it's actually really a wonderful thing. I, I would agree. I was with the local um, chapter of the Urban Sketchers in Ottawa for a couple of events, and just wonderful, wonderful people. And I think that, to your point, it's, you know, we want to be, so I'm going to couple two things together here. I think, we, you know, we want to be critical of our work, right? We want to look at our work and understand, you know, how can we improve it and, mm-hmm. you know, having that kind of reflection. But I think we also have to reflect on how we feel about it when we're doing it. And I think we tend to ignore that. Today, we had our power out just before I recorded. I was oh, thinking, gosh. oh, I, I hope it, well, it was planned. So I was, I, I thought it would come out early and it did. So I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell Stephanie until I have to. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I was, you know, I was having my coffee this morning. I'm thinking, I'm going to just, I'm going to sketch on my iPad. I haven't done that in a while. And I'm going to sketch a human being because I tend not mm-hmm. to do humans. Mm-hmm. And I did that. I spent a bit over an hour doing this sketch of uh, Rick the Muse who shares his photos everywhere. He's such a kind of interesting person to draw. And I don't, as I say, I don't usually do humans. I drew him on Procreate uh, just because it was convenient and I was sitting upstairs and we're all hanging out because the power is out. And I felt just wonderful. I like, I had my, I had my coffee like I usually do, but I was telling my wife, it's like, I feel really good this morning. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I'm typically a grouch or that, but I just felt better than normal. And I think I had this, kind of creative shower by having drawn or painted uh, in the morning. Mm, And it's like, wait a second, I think this is a bigger impact to me than I thought. And Mm -hmm. that was today. And I should know better. But I think, once again, it's that reflection on what we've done, but also how does it make you feel? And I think once we understand how it makes us feel, as you're speaking about these urban sketchers, there's a lot of value in it. There's a lot of value, not just in what we make. Absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. I mean, this is another thing that I love about urban sketchers. It's, it's, and I had to think about this a lot in the course of doing the world of urban sketching because I would ask some of my favorite sketchers to recommend their top 10 favorite sketchers. Because in the, in the process of doing research for this book, I, you know, combed every resource I could to try and find people that were doing great work that maybe people didn't know about yet. And so they'd send me a list of like 10 people and I'd start going through that list. And a lot of them were plein air painters or, or did work in the studio, which is, you know, those things are also valid, of course. But I, um, I had to think about like, what's the difference between urban sketching and plein air painting? And what I came up with, 
I don't, and this is, I guess, my opinion. When you write a book, you can make up your own things. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, but uh, to my mind, the, a plein air painter is, when the process gen is generally a little bit slower for most people, but it's not necessarily time-related. But I do think the purpose is a little bit different. I think plein air painters really want to kind of create a lovely piece of art and urban sketchers are more about capturing the experience and less about less about the art. So, for example, people ask me, you know, if you don't have time to paint on location, do you take it back to your studio and paint? And I say, no, I don't, uh, because it's it's about capturing the experience. And if if you know a truck pulls in front of my view and I I don't get to paint it, well. Too bad. <laughs> That's the experience, and I'll write on it. Well, truck pulled in front of my view. <laughs> so, um, but and therein lies the power of it, really, that it's it's about capturing the experience. So, so the drawing, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, becomes very meaningful to the person who created it, and uh, you know you can look at it and remember the truck, where you remember the sounds remember the the feeling of the air and the sun on your hat and uh, I mean it all comes flooding back because it's all embedded in 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 the sketch that you make or in the drawing or painting that you make and uh, it's it's really powerful on so many levels so I think this is part of why the world is obsessed with urban sketching <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's why I've, I've had so many urban sketchers on here is because I think it is so accessible. But I do feel that you're drawing and painting for you more than any other medium. Like you're drawing it to capture your experience. You're not necessarily, you know, the, the whole point is, especially if you go to an event, everybody does their thing and then you lay them out and you look at each other's work and it's not yeah. a non-critical kind of experience. Mm -hmm. But it does feel a lot more personal. And that enjoyment afterwards is a lot more as you say, the smells, the sounds, the experience, the, uh, I, I talk about this, my first urban sketch was at a beach in PEI, and I had drawn the water and the cliffs and all of that, and mm -hmm. I had, and the family's like, okay, let's go, and it's like, okay, so I, I closed the book, but it wasn't dry. So, oh! <laughs> so I ended up with this, these, these wonderful, dark, kind of mixed with a, a light ochre <laughs> clouds on, on the opposite side of the page. Oops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. First lesson of watercolor. Yeah. Uh, so it's, but I look at that now and I always giggle about it because that was my first experience. And I remember how warm it was. And uh, I almost feel like there's sand on the, on the paper still. Yeah. And it's, it is, and, and it's so, like anyone can do this. You, you can't, like, as long as, as you say, and I think maybe, to separate some of that, because I think you've talked about this uh, in another interview where you try to understand what is urban sketching. Like, you know, the difference between that and plein air is that the plein air is more kind of a perfection around an experience mm -hmm. outside. And, you know, urban sketching, to separate that from somebody doing it in studio, there's a difference there. And maybe you can speak to that as well, just so people understand what the expectation is around an urban sketch versus something that may be an urban scene done in studio. Oh, well, I mean, urban sketching is, if you're going to tag, um, you know, let's say you, you want to post your sketch or your piece of art and you tag urban sketchers, it has to be something done on location. 
So uh, kind of uh, studio drawing or virtual drawing from your computer or uh, anything that's not basically sketched on or sketched or painted on location is not technically an urban, an urban sketch. It doesn't have to be an urban scene. It could be a landscape, it could be people. Uh, one of my favorite drawings ever is by my neighbor, in fact, Stephen Reddy, who um, did the most wonderful drawing of a gas meter <laughs> that I put in my, one of my books. And, uh, you know, he elevated a gas meter. Jeez, I mean, <laughs> so, so the subject really doesn't matter. But the fact that it's live and it's something about it captures the, the energy. And I think for myself, when I work in the studio, it's, it's more comfortable. I mean, I, and of course, my day job is, is all working at a desk in my studio. And, but the environment is controlled and, you know, you can kind of anticipate how long the paint will it'll take for the paint to dry. And in some respects, it's easier uh, because all those variables are controlled, but but I mean, the part of the excitement of going out and sketching is is the fact that you know you, you don't know what what's going to happen. <laughs> right. And I have to say, I love that you have a completely different career in your day job, because you then you because you make a choice, you know, just just do the drawing of that person on your iPad, and uh, you make a choice. Every drawing that you do that's not, you know, something that's related to work. So you know very well, you know, those good feelings that you get by doing what you do. And I love it when people come from completely different professions or backgrounds and, and somehow find themselves enthralled with, with doing this kind of drawing or sketching. Yeah, I'm anxious. I'm in Ottawa and there's still snow on the ground. Mm. And so I'm anxious to get out again and, and start drawing and painting some of the stuff outside. But mm. uh, I, I do really enjoy, I always cut my consumption of lunch down to like five or 10 minutes such mm -hmm. that I can draw or paint for the rest of it at work. Oh, and, uh, that's fantastic. It, yeah, it makes for an interesting day. And uh, I work in a hospital, so, you know, residents and mm -hmm. physicians and nurses mm -hmm. and patients walk by and are like, what, what's he doing? And a lot of people will comment, which I think is wonderful, but mm -hmm. um, it is, it's nice to uh, to find the nooks and crannies in my days to be able to to be creative. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, one of the people in the book, Uma Kelkar, she does these gorgeous, juicy watercolors. But what I ended up putting in the book were her iPad sketches. And she'll take it with her, like to the grocery store, and she allow, allows a little extra time to sketch the inside of the parking garage <laughs> in the grocery store. And nice. I put that in the book because it's like, yeah, who thinks to sketch the you know concrete parking garage? But she does it, and it's a beautiful drawing, and uh, you know, it just goes to show you can you can find those little moments here and there and fill them with uh, with uh, great sketches. There, there is kind of this wonderful exploration of of shape and color and texture with everything that's out there, and mm -hmm. it's 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 fun. Yeah, I the know. subjects are limitless. That said, I have to confess that I am a travel sketcher. I don't do much sketching at home, and that's in large part because my day job is very demanding, and I have a lot of deadlines. I often work weekends, and so I'm I'm really a travel sketcher. So I I sketch to learn about the things that I see and to be able to remember them better. Right. So um, that is a little different from, you know, somebody like Paul Heaston, who seems to 
create a masterpiece every day. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> darn him. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I thought when he started having kids and he had young kids, I was like, oh, goodbye, Paul. We're not going to see much from you anymore. <laughs> Lo and behold, he's like the biggest following on Instagram of any urban sketcher on the planet and yep. just, you know, cranks out all this work, even if it's just a, a drawing of his kids, which are the most beautifully documented kids anywhere. Yes, exactly. Um, so anyway. Yeah. Recorded a high definition too with ink. <laughs> so. I know. He's, he's amazing. Yeah. He yep. is also in this new book. I know I keep bringing up this book, but, uh, and in fact, I write about the story about meeting Paul in, in Brazil, we were, there was a group after the Urban Sketchers Symposium in Parachi, Brazil in 2014, there was a group of us that were kind of wandering around for a day and we came across this guy, you know, standing there with a tiny little sketchbook and we're like, oh, look, there's someone sketching. <laughs> so, of course, we all walk up and say, can we see your sketchbook? And he says, sure. So, you know, he hands over the sketchbook. And with each, as we turned each page, our jaws got closer and closer to the ground. And, uh, you know, every page was, was amazing. So we all learned immediately who Paul Easton was. <laughs> yeah, he's That's incredible. Fantastic. Yeah, and I'll, um, I'll, I'll take this opportunity to, to tell you, the listener, that uh, I will link to Paul Heaston and everyone else and everything else that we talk about in the show notes. So if you are unable to get to the show notes at this point in time, just know they'll be there for you if you want to explore anything that we've talked about further. Mm -hmm. uh, you can click on those links and take them to, uh, to all these wonderful places online. And if you're going to do that, then I'm going to mention my latest favorite sketcher. I'm a little obsessed with his work. And he is in the book. He's the nicest guy. He's from Indonesia, Surabaya, Indonesia. And his name is Sudarman Angir. And he is, I, I love his work. He sketches on location. In fact, he's going to be teaching at the Urban Sketcher Symposium in a few weeks in Auckland, New Zealand, as am I, thankfully. And, but he also does uh, work in his studio to kind of keep up and develop his his technique and to to kind of practice and I got I just am obsessed with his work if I could take a workshop from one person in the world right now it would be him so wow. definitely you know follow him and I will link to him too then <laughs> yeah his last name is A-N-G-I-R Angir okay mm -hmm. okay he's so I'll put him in the show notes for sure amazing and he is an architect so he tends to focus on buildings kind of the way I do I'm quite terrible at sketching people for me they're just in the drawings for scale and right. so we understand how big something is and also buildings don't move so they're much easier to draw <laughs> it's like it's not going anywhere right I like to include animals and seagulls and that for scale instead of people because I, I prefer animals but <laughs> yeah. much more. Those work too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very clever. <laughs> so I wanted to, so you mentioned he's an architect as well. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to just, before we get into your tools, which everyone likes to talk about, whether you're an urban sketcher or anybody else, what do, what do you paint with? What do you paint on? I wanted to understand as your day job working in the architecture industry mm -hmm. uh, in, in rendering buildings and, and in outside outdoor environments. Mm -hmm. are, are you doing that analog? Are you doing that digital? And how hard is it to separate the urban sketcher from the day job? Because they're close, but 
they're not the same. So mm-hmm. do you do you find one leaking into the other ever? Well, there's def- as a matter of style? That's a really good question. There is definitely overlap, but uh, the intent is very different. You know, I, I actually, this is, I love this about what I do. I now, because of the computer, actually, I thought I would have been out of work by now, but I actually have tons of work. And one of the projects I'm working on now is the waterfront in Charleston, South Carolina. And so I'm contacted by the design firm, which in this case is Perkins and Will, whom I've worked with a lot out of the Atlanta office. And they and others hire me because I can do a drawing before there's an actual design, architectural design. So I get something that from them that looks like just boxes. And I turn it into architecture and add materials and detail and people and and cars and trees and but for me I I love that I still get to wear my architect hat every now and then and kind of just make up what these buildings look like you know they'll send me some precedent images and so I get a flavor for kind of the style maybe that they're looking for the kind of architecture but I get to pretty much make it up and then they present it and sometimes it actually influences the final design I've heard so that's actually a fun aspect of my day job. I'm not just like given something that's complete and told to do a drawing of it because those are typically done uh, digitally these days. And they look amazing and they're photorealistic. But for some clients, you know, having something look like it's already been built and you can go visit it and take pictures of it down the street is intimidating and frightening because they feel like they can't be part of the design process. So right. so they'll come to me and hire me and to do a drawing that's looser, uh, it's more suggestive, than doesn't commit to certain elements because it's, it's just kind of suggests what things could look like. And so that's really fun. And I use slightly, well, I use a different paper, actually. And for my renderings, I use Arsh bright white 140 pound cold press but for my uh, urban sketching that paper doesn't work for me Um, I don't feel like I can draw on it very well and um, I need something that's a little a little harder to draw on I'm always hunting for the perfect paper or sketchbook for drawing because it has to be able to handle the pencil well and the paint well so you need something that is fairly smooth and maybe has a little bit of a stiff sizing on it um, for the drawing part. But that's not necessarily good for the painting part. Paint, painting wants like, you know, 300-pound paper or 140-pound paper and some texture to it to kind of hold and grab the watercolor and the pigment in the water. So um, they're a little bit at odds with each other. And it's tricky finding the, I mean, I still haven't found the perfect sketchbook, but I'm looking. So, uh, but to find something that has those two qualities together, uh, I, I use the Hanumula sketchbooks. Um, right now I have the 100%, uh, the new, relatively new 100% cotton um, sketchbook. I use Pentalic sketchbooks. I have stacks and stacks of drawings that I've, uh, you know, urban sketches that I've done that are on fluid uh, watercolor paper, the cellulose paper. It's a, a very inexpensive paper, and I, 
I just got used to using it and so I, I know what to expect from it. I know how much I can draw, how much I can paint, and what they will look like together. And but they don't make the size that I use anymore. So I have a nasty paper cut on my <laughs> on my finger because I had a bigger bigger um, pad of paper that I cut down to the eight by sixteen size that I like. So and so that's your preferred size. Yeah. And so when I'm doing something that I n know is going to be very architectural, I actually don't do it in my sketchbook. I do it in my um, on that big sheet of paper, and you know the. I think the more comfortable one gets with sketching, kind of the more comfortable you are with, with the bigger piece of paper, that you have a, a need for a bigger piece of paper. So I always tell beginners to um, start small with a small sketchbook because it's much less overwhelming in terms of trying to capture a lot of, well, you can't fit a lot of de detail on the page. And it's less intimidating filling a small piece of paper compared to a big piece of paper. And I also ha had a lesson from this in on a trip to India. Well, actually, that first trip to India, I was, you know, had this enormous sketchbook, and I'm trying to do these grand, you know, sketches that are like capturing the entire complex of buildings in front of me. And I took it so seriously. And then one night at dinner at, at the hotel. I started talking with another woman who happened to be from California and she had a sketchbook too and she was so excited and she ran and got her sketchbook and she brought it back and it was this tiny little thing and she had scenes like the top of a palm tree or the face of a camel and when I saw how excited she was that she was excited about her, her small sketchbook and you know very small scenes in exactly the same way that I was excited by my, you know, grand attempts. It was a great slap up the side of the head because it was like, <laughs> you know, gosh, people, it doesn't matter what you do. You know, you, you work at whatever level you are. If you're just beginning, if you're, if you're just doing like the nostrils of the camel, then, you know, that's fantastic because she was recording her experiences the same way I was recording mine. So it kind of doesn't doesn't matter. I really want to explore kind of the brushes you use. So maybe if you can talk talk us through kind of what what you like to use maybe now because I know that changes over time, but what's your favorite brushes? Actually, I've had a favorite brush for years now. Oh wow. And it's it's pretty much the only brush I use and I own hundreds of brushes, right? Because we're <laughs> all obsessed with materials because we think that if you find the perfect brush, then it's going to, you know, improve your work. You know, you'll finally achieve what you want to achieve with your work because you found the perfect brush. So we, you know, buy art supplies like crazy. And as far as habits go, it's a pretty good healthy habit, I got to say. I mean, better spending money on a paintbrush than pills or something, right? So mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, my favorite that I use for traveling is uh, the Escoda perla like the spanish word for pearl perla it's a synthetic brush it's a beautiful travel brush and it comes in this little metal tube and you just take the cap off you uh, attach it to the back and you've got this it's, it's beautifully weighted it's snug it's I, I like the perla I, I mean i've gotten used to the bristles i also have their reserva travel brushes which are kalinsky sable but they hold so much water um, that, and I, I tend to use the synthetic brushes in my sketchbooks. The 
there, I, and also you, you never want to dig on your paper or in dry paint with a Kalinsky sable brush because it'll ruin the tip, which is what I in fact did in India is I ruined the tip of my brush. Um, so I use the synthetic for most things, but if I really want to do something kind of splashy and, and also just those beginning first, first big washes in watercolor, I'll use the, the bigger Kalinsky sable Reserva brush. I, I have a size 10 and a size 12 in that. And, and then in my studio, I use um, Escoda brushes as well. And I use um, probably 98% of the time I'm using a, um, uh, just a regular round paintbrush, Escoda um, size 14 Perla. And I have to say, I've, I've been such a huge fan of Escoda brushes for a long time that I, the first one I ever saw was on a boat in Brazil and uh, so another urban sketcher had it and I just was obsessed with it. I couldn't take my eyes off of it. So from that point on, I was on a quest to try and find one. So I think I went to Europe maybe the next year and found found one of their brushes and, I, and I've been a super fan ever since. In fact, um, I was in New York a few years ago and uh, it was snowing and I was meeting a friend for dinner and I realized there was an art supply store nearby. So I went into the art supply store. Uh, it was a few minutes before it was closing and I'm kind of looking around and I overhear this woman say, well, where are we going to put the Escoda guys tomorrow? <laughs> and I was like, what? What? So, I, you know, of course I worked my way over and said, did you just say Escoda guys? And they said, yeah, they're coming here for a demo tomorrow. And I literally had like 16 hours in Manhattan. So I, I couldn't believe the timing. So I said, would you mind, please, if I come and, and do, watch this demo? And they're, they were like, yeah, no problem. So I show up the next day. I get there early, of course. And I'm thinking they're going to be like 80 people there, you know, that everyone wants to come see this, this Escoda demo, brush making demo. But no. It's me and two employees. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, uh, and I just like, I, it was like I had a crush on, on them. It, I acted like a giddy schoolgirl. I was so excited <laughs> to see these brushes made and see these brushes. And it's, it's a family owned and family run business that was started by uh, the grandfather of these two, you know, guys from, a town outside of Barcelona, Spain, and it's it's a, literally a family business, business, and they keep running it, and and their grandfather like invented the machinery used to make the brushes, wow. and and so one one year when I that happened to be right before I was going to Barcelona, and I was literally going to try and contact them, and because I I had heard that they do tours of the factory, and 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 I was thinking like how am I going to contact them and get a tour of the factory but there there they were and they gave me a brush and and I connected with them and I got to have a tour of the factory and invited other urban sketchers from Barcelona to participate to join us and it was wonderful and I think I'm going to be a brand ambassador for Escoda. Oh that would be awesome. Yeah so I'm <laughs> super excited and at least they said I am. It's not official I haven't signed anything yet but but and and I and I told them, look, this is going to be really easy for me because I already talk about your brushes. <laughs> so 
They're, I, I mean, I, I love them. I, I think they should be in the Museum of Modern Art as a beautifully designed object. I've had a few artists on here using a Skoda, and I, I actually have a set of a Skoda. Mm -hmm. It comes like in a three-pack of travel brushes. Yeah, in fact, they're going to do an urban sketching set, and I'm helping them develop that. That's awesome. Yeah. You mentioned the pearl at the beginning. Is it a pointed round? Or is it a dagger? Like, what is the tip on that first one you mentioned? It's a pointed round, but they are talking okay. about putting a dagger in the in the set because, you know, when the idea for this set came up and... I contacted, I don't know, maybe 15 urban sketchers I know who use watercolors. And I asked them what brushes they use. And a lot of them said they use a dagger. So um, I have yet to actually try a dagger. But I'm going to try it because I do like angled shader brushes as well. They're great for architecture because you can get into corners and edges easily. Right. Um, so I'm, I, I don't know, I'm eager to try an Escoda dagger. That would be uh, that'd be cool to become a brand ambassador. I know I had uh, Anna Bucciarelli on uh, back in 2019 on the podcast, and she does wonderful work, uh, wonderful watercolor work, and she does coins for the Canadian Mint. Oh so my actually, gosh! It's it's incredible. But she, I guess, was in Spain and she got a tour of yeah. their factory. Yeah, so she was they're... posting. It's just amazing. Yeah, they're super uh, nice. I took a lot of pictures, but they wouldn't. You know, you can't really post it because it's proprietary right. equipment. But it was amazing to see, you know, the room where they store all the Kalinsky sable hairs and all, just talk to them. And they're so nice, and uh, they love what they do. It's, uh, it's a wonderful company. They make a wonderful product. Yeah, and I think, you know, to your point about everybody wants the best brush, you know, like, I'll be a fantastic artist if I just get this one brush, right? Yeah. The next brush. And it's it's not so much, like, I... I have the Kalinsky. I have a lot of brushes, as you probably do as well, and I still fall back to the Pentel Aqua brush, which has the water in the in the in the uh, in the holder itself, with just a nylon tip on it, because I do small work in an A6, and for me it's just convenient. I carry the three different sizes, and when I want to run out of water, I just unscrew one reservoir and plug it into the other, <laughs> and that way I can go on and on and I don't have to worry about carrying water with me and all that kind of stuff. But I still use normal kind of brushes with water. But I, I, I think to the point that the brushes are going to make or break you, but once you get comfortable with a brush, you can then focus on the other things. Right? That's exactly right. Yeah. There are so many variables to, to watercolor, unlimited number of pigments you can use in unlimited numbers of combinations and uh, yeah, all different kinds of brushes, sizes, bristles, shapes. Uh, yeah, if you can figure out what what you like in at least one of those variables, that <laughs> that helps helps a lot. I mean, it's it's good to experiment, but it's also good to just get used to something as well. Right. Yeah. Just spending time with it, and um, on that point, your. So we talked about the paper and the brushes. What are you using as a matter of uh, paints? Are you, like, as a matter of brands, are you all over the place? Do you have a, a palette? Do you like to work from uh, reactivating dried paints? Do you like to use them out of the tube? You want to speak to your paints a little bit? I use Winsor Newton and Daniel Smith and different colors for each or in each. I like the Winsor Newton French Ultramarine uh, the Daniel Smith one, I can tell when people paint with it because the way it granulates on the paper. I'll just I'll see it on the paper and I'll say that's a Daniel Smith ultramarine blue, right? 
<laughs> they're like, how'd you know? <laughs> so, um, and same for burnt sienna. It's just a different color compared to the Daniel Smith. I use the Windsor Newton. Uh, but Daniel Smith, I mean, they have a fantastic unbelievable range of colors and they're based in Seattle and they used to have a walk-in store here that is sadly gone now in fact the last image in my book is is a sketch that I did inside that store and I I say it's a love letter to Daniel Smith because we miss them so much so they have fantastic paints and it's the best-selling paint in the world and they even though their store closed they continue to make it here uh, but it's like trying to get into Fort Knox. I, I went by with chocolates one day after they closed, and I literally <laughs> couldn't get in. I was looking for a camera, and I started to wave at things and knock on things, but I couldn't get in. So um, so those those are the, the brands of paint. I love uh, quinacridone burnt orange. I, I use that. I, I drop that Daniel Smith color into my shades and shadows uh, to get that glow. Of bounced light and uh, uh, I don't know it's it's fantastic you know I also just filmed a class for a company called terracotta out of Seattle and they just had a full weekend like it was a marathon of of workshops and I watched a lot of them they were they were fantastic and um, but I'll have a class I think coming out in May through them called perspective for painters but anyway, a lot. I watched a lot of the demos during that the course of that weekend because I'm, you know, we're all always learning, and a lot of them used Escoda brushes, and a lot of them used Daniel Smith paints too. I have a mix of like Daniel Smith. I've got some of the Schmincke, um or Schmincke, um super granulating. Um, I've got a little bit of Winsor Newton, but the ones I'm really enjoying right now are the core uh, watercolors from Golden. Really? So yeah, it's. I find they're really vibrant, and you know, to your point about Escoda being a family company, Golden is that. Wow. And so, as soon as I hear that, it's like, I love you. Like, <laughs> I just <laughs> I want to support that kind of experience, yeah. right? Yeah. And they aren't far from me. I think they're in New York State somewhere. So uh-huh. I was thinking they're in the U.S. Yeah. So I think once I can get my, um, I have I. I haven't renewed my passport in a few years. I, I'd love to go down and, and if I can visit them, but their core watercolors are um, are just wonderful. Oh, that's great and, to know. And and I'm wondering with you, are you, I always like to ask this question, are you protecting the whites, leaving the whites alone, or do you come in with gouache? Do you ever play with gouache and watercolor? No, I, I, I try and protect the whites on the page. I always say in my workshops that it's ironic that the hardest part of painting is where you don't paint. Or actually, not the hardest. It is the hardest, but the most... Im- I should revise that. Go back. <laughs> uh, the most important part, I should say, the most important part of painting is, ironically, where you don't paint. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I try and leave whites. And, you know, uh, with sketching, it's... I mean, it's kind of easy to sort of have your uh, brush dance around the page and leave little gaps in between the strokes. Yeah, and to your point, even with painting, or sorry, even with drawing, negative drawing and negative painting, you really need to be good at that. Like, it's not putting paint or graphite or charcoal, or you don't have to put it all down. Sometimes it's it's more interesting to paint around that area that's elevated or reflecting. Light oh, or f- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I um, in in my 101 Sketching Tips book, I talk about how you can take ink or pencil and 
and not leave those little gaps in between strokes. And it, it does what I call kills the paper because it just saturates the paper with ink and those, which is not a good look. It's, and it's, it feels very heavy and thick. Right. Um, so yeah, if you can leave whites you know, in an ink sketch, a pencil sketch, and also do strokes that, that leave little gaps of white in between, um, that generally tends to just feel better in a drawing. And are you, when you're doing your, your piece as a matter of process, are you drawing it out in pencil? And like, so what's your process? Do you do pencil, then ink, then watercolor? Or how are you doing those urban sketching pieces? I'm, I'm a pencil drawer. I don't actually use ink. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I do for some sketches and I love ink and I see what other people are doing in ink and I'm like, gosh, darn it. I need to be, <laughs> I need to be drawing in ink. You know, because uh, the pencil sometimes is a little too soft and the ink really, black ink or whatever ink makes makes sketches really pop. Um, but I draw in pencil. I use a 0.5 mechanical pencil with either B or 2B lead. I can't believe sometimes that I use a mechanical pencil, but it's because there's no good travel pencil sharpener. And, and I don't want to leave little shavings everywhere I go, so... Uh-huh. I switched to mechanical pencil and I actually love it. Uh, the caveat is it has to have that softer lead in it so it, um, right. I can get some variation in my line. And, and I use a straight edge, you know, a little eight inch triangle. I, I often joke that I'm anticipating the day where I'm going to get kicked out of Urban Sketchers because I, I use a straight edge. But it speeds things up for me and, um, and I can do an accurate line very quickly. And uh, so paper, I use a kneaded eraser. I have, I use my little uh, Winsor Newton Sketchers pocket box as a palette. And then I, on location, I attach everything to a piece of corrugated plastic that I bought at, you can buy it at Home Depot or uh, Michael's or those places. Um, And I cut it to fit in my backpack. And I clip everything to it. I have a little piece of Velcro that I use to attach the Winsor Newton pocket box, pocket box, Skechers pocket box <laughs> palette. And uh, I, have a, I made a little round hole and I stick a, a pill bottle in there that I use for water. And, uh, and it turns out it's great. I used to carry an easel and all of that. But when I was in India, they wouldn't allow you to bring that kind of equipment into historic sites. And so I was like, aha, I brought this little (laughs) corrugated thing. I'll try that. And uh, it proved to be a great thing to use. That's wonderful. I will link out, you mentioned a lot of things. I'll just remind people I will will link out (laughs) to all of these little bits where we can, because I I, I agree. And I, it was so funny to hear you talk about pencil because I love pencil and I transitioned to, uh, well, actually, I still use wooden pencils, but I predominantly use a 0.3 millimeter oh, mechanical yeah. pencil uh, with 2B lead. Yeah. And because uh, you can achieve so much with it. I do have a 0.5 with a 4B lead, but I rarely use it. Wow. Mostly it's just 0.3 and, and um, 2B. And I did it for the same reason. I wanted to bring my little kit to work and I didn't have to want to worry about shavings or lead anywhere. Yeah. I used to use the two millimeter uh, drafting pencils. Mm-hmm. Um, like the pencil holders, but once again, you couldn't. And I'm going to hold it up here. You've probably seen these. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the lead, the lead sharpeners are just. They've got a big hole in the top that just lets the lead fall out, 
And then I found... I'm going to make you really jealous. I'm holding up my electric sharpener. <laughs> oh, that's pretty. <laughs> that's so nice. I use those for work, actually. Those okay. are great. <laughs> so I, I found this, which is brilliant, for the two millimeter because it is an eraser, but it's mm. also a sharpener for the two no millimeter. No way! So now... This little blue part you see remaining, and I'll, I'll link to this for those who, obviously, none of you who can see it, um, it holds the shaving. So you can actually carry your 2B and sharpen it without getting a mess everywhere. Oh. And I know, I know you can put it in the top of the, the, the pencil, but this gives you a much better. And then I just saw this. I'm going to, sorry, fan over this stuff, but this Coom sharpener. Uh-huh. I have one of those, yeah. And so you can sharpen your your leads in the side but they still leak out so i, I still yeah. go to this little one which is nice but i usually it's 0.3 millimeters so i was so it was so wonderful to hear you like uh, you know what uh, i'm mechanical is the way to go because it's nice and clean and but I, what i've been doing lately which has been kind of fun and and a bit crazy i think is drawing straight in ink but instead of using like a food a like Merrick and 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 others, um, or Captain Tommy uses like a a, a bent nib or a, a flexible nib, mm-hmm. is using the uh, the Sigma Micron, but the the one with the sepia ink, not the black ink. Yeah, and I find that gives me the look of pencil, but not not having to worry about the smudges, and I can always go a little bit darker uh, where I need to, and that's been fun. I'm literally writing this down. What <laughs> what size do you use? It's a 005. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I have one. <laughs> I just have yeah, to just, dig it out. They just came out recently, and it's got like it... A zero, zero 005, and you're working at a small size, so what yeah. size is your sketchbook? So this, my normal one's an A6, uh-huh. but I will, um, I will work in an A5. The A4 is, if I've got more time, but I'm always being real quick about it. But yeah. the sepia ink... I, I heard about this from Lara Call Gastinger, who's a botanical artist um, known for her perpetual journal out of West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about this pen, and I was like, I can't find it in Canada. And I ordered it online, and boom. Uh, it's It's been fantastic because it feels like pencil. It's like when I'm sketching with it, I don't feel like I've got the stress of drawing directly with ink because it's lighter. And I can angle it down, and I can just scratch the paper just enough to see my line, and then I can come in darker if I want to. And it's it's almost like using a pencil. Speaking of sepia or sepia, I like that sepia. That's how you'd say in Spanish. Ink. Um, I want to recommend another sketcher, and her okay. name is Jing, and I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce her last name, so I'm just going to spell it Z H A N G. She goes by Jenny. She's from China, but she lives in Chicago. Her Instagram is Jenny Mouse two thousand three. And okay. I love, she's another one I just, I'm obsessed about. I love her sketches. She's in the new book and uh, she uses brown ink and has a wonderful loose style and uh, does architecture and people and food and she, she draws everything and anything. And uh, she, she's, I think her work is, is fantastic. I'll have to check that out. I'll mm-hmm. link to her directly as well. Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to promote. I would love to promote every single person in that book. <laughs> you know, I did want to actually actually talk a little bit about putting it together. Yeah, because I I I do want to kind of explore that because we've talked around the book and it's it's yeah. seeped in. But I would like you to kind of talk about that experience and putting the book together. Why did you do it? 
How hard was it pulling that all together? Oh, it was so hard. Um, <laughs> well, the publisher came to me and asked asked if I would do it. They wanted to do a 10 years later sequel to Gabby's The Art of Urban Sketching. And um, Gabby Campanario, that is, the founder of Urban Sketchers. And, um, you know, like a 10 years later look, check in at, at what what's happening. And uh, I had... I thought about it for a while and decided to go ahead and do it. And I, about, I don't know, three weeks into it, I started realizing it should not be called, as they intended, The Art of Urban Sketching Volume 2. But if you want to show a 10 years later snapshot of the world of sketching, you need to, in fact, call it The World of Urban Sketching. So, so that's what it's called, The World of Urban Sketching. And it's enormous. It's 240 pages and I went nuts because there were so many people I wanted to include. I, I don't know what I was thinking, honestly. There are over 700 images, wow. 156 contributors. You would not believe what my spreadsheets look like because it was the only way I could, could manage anything. And there are still tons of people I would have loved to have put in. There was just literally not enough pages. So I kind of squished the drawings in and and tried to get as many people in as I could from around the world and it's basically a a city to city tour of uh, different urban sketchers around the globe I got to teach at a symposium a regional symposium in 2018 in Taichung Taiwan and boy that opened up my eyes to the fantastic sketchers in that part of the world uh, you know, tons in, in India and Indonesia and China and oh, oh my gosh. And they're, they're just incredible. So, so I sat at my computer, you know, we were all in the depths of the pandemic and I quarantined and I live in Seattle. So we were quarantined probably longer than a lot of other cities and, and just traveled the world from my computer every day. And some days I'd walk downstairs, I'd say to my husband, who was working in the basement, oh my God, I just exchanged emails with people on four different continents. <laughs> it was just like, oh my God. And then they'd send me, you know, some people I would cold call them via Instagram or Facebook messaging. And I had to be really careful and so that it didn't sound like I was a phishing email. You know, right. my name is Stephanie Bauer. I'm an urban sketcher from Seattle. I've written two books. I'm working on my third book. And uh, some of them, I think, knew me. Some, I think some of them didn't. And they would write back and I'd say, you know, please send me 10 to 20 examples. And they'd email me back with these examples. And I would literally fall off my chair laughing with delight because I couldn't believe the beautiful work they sent. I mean, it was unbelievably motivating. I, it took, I spent at least a year and a half on it. And, and longer if you consider all the peripheral things you have to do with respect to getting a book out. And, and I worked on it seven days a week. And I, it was so much work and it really challenged my ability to organize anything because it was so complicated and there were so many moving pieces, but I loved every minute of it. I just, I loved it. It was wonderful to see all this work and people were excited about being in the book and it's, it's, um, 
And, you know, I, I love that they're willing to share their work so that people around the world can see what they do. And I mean, it's, it's literally like seeing where they live through their eyes. And I think my favorite section is the COVID sketches. And I thought, you know, how am I going to talk about COVID in this book? Obviously, you know, it's going to come out and, you know, we will have hopefully lived through, you know, this pandemic. So I have a lot of COVID sketches, an entire, I think, eight-page section just on COVID sketches from around the world. And uh, what did I write in the book? It was, well, this is specifically about uh, a kind of a program that Urban Sketchers, the organization, ran during the pandemic called USK Talks. So this was a spread devoted to images relating to USK Talks, but it, it really relates to everything um, during the pandemic, and it says, US, and all these sketches done during the pandemic, USK Talks not only gave us a peek into the daily lives of fellow sketchers around the world, they assured us that no matter where we were, we were united in facing the same challenges. Together, we could get through this. And I, f I feel like that's the message of the book, really. Yes, 10 years later, it's, it's a phenomenon around the world, but it's also a lesson in that, you know, together we can get through anything. It looks like a wonderful, wonderful book. And, you know, I love seeing these books coming up because just having this available, just to flip through a few pages uh, and, and seeing this inspiration from, you said 156 yeah, different artists? Yeah, contributors. That's just crazy. Mm -hmm. That is crazy. Yeah. Do you have a couple of memorable spreads that... Uh... Yes, I do. Let me grab the book again. One of my favorites, you know, the f I, I tried to find representatives of parts of the world that aren't typically in other books. So I think a lot of, a lot of books are very Euro or uh, American Canadian centric, but I really wanted to dig into parts of India and Taiwan and, and China and the, and Japan here, I'm flipping through it, um, but the first place I looked was Africa. So I literally went to the Urban Sketchers website that has the list of all the uh, chapters around the world and, and started scoping out Sketchers in Africa. And I, there are a couple that are just wonderful, but one that stood out to me was Noel Okelo. And I kind of originally allotted spot for one of his sketches. But, you know, I asked him to send me like 10 to 20. And, and when I saw them all as a collection, you know, he's, he's one where I just, you know, again, fell off my chair. Because not only does he do these amazing sketches of the most mundane scenes, I mean, freeways, parking lots, <laughs> I mean, you know, otherwise incredibly boring scenes. But he does these beautiful drawings with nothing but a really basic pad of paper and a Bic pen. And he writes poetry on them. And when he, to get comments about people, about their work, I sent them all questionnaires to complete. And what he wrote in the questionnaire was so good, because he's a poet, uh, in addition to a talented sketcher. Then I, uh, I just literally like pulled quotes and stuck them in the book. And one of my favorite ones was the one of a cow in the middle of traffic. And he writes, 
a town south of Nairobi, which is where he's from. And Noel says, this is me writing actually, Noel says that the Maasai still bring their livestock through Kitengela while searching for pasture and water, midst busy traffic and no traffic lights. Noel discovered a lone cow mooing in the middle of the chaos. And then he writes, I stood and wondered what the cow could be communicating through her impassioned moos. And then the history of Kitengela came to me and the drastic change that has occurred from the days it was open savanna country to today's crowded town flooded my mind. It occurred to me that she could have been communicating something about that. (laughs) (laughs) She was looking for her pastures, you know, and instead finding streets and traffic. So uh, he's really one of my one of my favorites as well i i just i love it but and as i flip through it there's here's also um william cordero from costa rica writes uh his the quote in his on his pages sketching is a great tool to be present in the moment to let go of worries and fears to connect with yourself and especially during difficult times you might find new strengths and things you didn't know about yourself. And I'd say that's super true. Um, There are sections on techniques. There are sections on different kinds of drawings. Another person I really love is Dwa from Madagascar. And he did the most amazing, really powerful sketches. And you just have to, I can't even describe them. You just have to get the book and and look (laughs) at them. But... uh, uh, just incredible. Here is uh, Terry Chahab, uh, and I think he's Atari on um, on uh, Instagram, and he documented the explosion in in the at the port of Beirut, and one of the things he did was uh, interview and sketch his grandmother, who has since passed away. So not only was he documenting this this awful event. Uh, through reportage sketching, but uh, you know he has now this this recollection of of his grandmother um, that he captured. Incredible. Yeah, it's it's wonderful to hear these artists that can paint with watercolor and ink, but also can paint with words. Yeah, like to hear that you know, the the power of poetry being able to uh, to sit alongside their sketches. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I, I just. I, I could talk about this book for hours, so sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. But I love it. I just love it. I mean, the passion comes through with your voice. <laughs> and <laughs> would this book be something that if I was just exploring urban sketching, just starting out, would this be a book that I would find uh, that would fit into my journey? Absolutely. So this book inspires me. It encur- has encouraged me to paint a little bit differently, to try some different materials. Yeah, I mean, you can't help but be inspired. Also, one of the first people I contacted was in Bhutan. There is an urban sketcher in Bhutan, and his his stuff is is beautiful, and he has a hard time uh, getting materials uh, for sketching in Bhutan. And I actually tried to send him a small sketchbook and found out the postage was going to be over $100. So (laughs) I kind of nixed that idea, but I'm still on a mission to get him art supplies. So, you know, somebody asked me, what, what, what do I do for inspiration? And, you know, other than traveling, which is of course inspiring, but and I, I look at the work of other people and I, I try and see the world, their world through their eyes. 
and look at the tools, materials, and techniques, the subjects. You know, what do they do that's different from what I do? And it's just an incredible source of inspiration. So to me, I think this book is great for anyone who is looking for inspiration. Is there anything you would have done differently looking back on it in putting this book together? Oh, you had to ask that, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It does have to be negative. It does have to be negative. Uh, I think I would have changed the layouts a little bit. I, I did the layouts and then sent them to the editors who sometimes move things around a little bit. And I wasn't always happy with that, to be perfectly honest. But I think I would make the flow a little bit different. But that probably means I wouldn't have been able to include as many sketchers as I did. Right. And so I, I went for quantity. But I don't know. I, all, on the whole, I'm extremely happy. And I'm somebody who's never happy with my work. Because I always <laughs> look at the things I could have done better. But I look at this book and I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. Do you think there's going to be a uh, another one? <laughs> you got to let me recover from this first. <laughs> but you know, my first book is Understanding Perspective, and I love that book because mm-hmm. it it sort of bridges the abstract concepts of what I call boxes on a table to what the heck do you do when you want to sketch, you know, what's right in front of you and you're sitting on a sidewalk and you want to sketch a street, where do you start? So I loved that book, Understanding Perspective. And after I finished it, I thought, well, I'm done. That's it. (laughs) Nothing else in me for another book. And then not that long afterwards, I came up with an idea for another book. And then, uh, so the second one came out, 101 Sketching Tips. And then, lo and behold, another book dropped in my lap. And I, I, I took off months from work for doing it. It's not a money-making proposition at all. In fact, I, I basically lose money <laughs> doing a book. So, but it's a it's a, a labor of love. And it's sad, actually, that the author can't, you know, actually make money doing a book. But it's a labor of love. And I would do it again in a heartbeat because I, I love the process. I love seeing the work. Um, I'm just so inspired and motivated by seeing what other people do. And it's nice to kind of hold it in your hands and flip through it as opposed to looking at something on the computer screen. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. Did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah, I think I think you did. I had one uh, artist on here who did a book and she said it was like somebody thro- uh, driving down the highway beside you and throwing an octopus on fire into your car. But <laughs> it's like working in a book, with a, on a book. Um, <laughs> So I can appreciate that you need some time away from it, but I, I also appreciate that you've got this passion, this this kind of burning passion inside you that kind of just erupts every so often in the form of a book or in form of, of some other activity that <laughs> uh-huh. allows us to to not only see your work, but to be able to connect with others. And I think that's what's, you may end up losing money or breaking even on the book, but what it's provided is, is a network and an opportunity for those in Bhutan who don't have uh, have trouble even getting supplies, but now they have a network they can rely on. And I think in some cases, that's what puts artists to the next level is the opportunity to, to fall back and to feel validated and to feel they're part of something bigger. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm always perplexed when you like, hear about artists who work in isolation and and I understand kind of the need to just be on your own and focus on your own thing but like I think about Andrew Wyeth 
whose work I adore, um, mm -hmm. and how he would be like out on some island off the coast of Maine all by himself, you know, <laughs> working away. And I thought, oh my gosh, how can he do that? Not be around other people and see yeah. what other people are doing. Yeah, I agree. I think um, I, I'm going to order this book. <laughs> thank you. I, I end up uh, interviewing people and then getting their books either shortly before or shortly after I speak to them. And I just love having this kind of stuff available when I'm working and I just want to flip through something. It's uh, And I, I just know this book is, is, is for me, so I'm anxious to get it as soon as I can. So I'm looking forward to that. I'll send you one. No way. Yeah, <laughs> I will send you one. Oh, I'd love that. Although I have to buy copies too, because <laughs> I gave my, I had ten, I got ten authors' copies, and I gave them gave them away to uh, to some of the contributors in the book. So well, we'll we'll figure something I'm out. I'm just really determined not to make any money on a book. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, maybe we can barter something, or we'll figure out something yeah, that uh, yeah. that'll be fun. Yeah. Yeah. So I would. I'm going to include a link directly to it, so that people can in the um, in the show notes be able to go out and purchase the book. Mm -hmm. 240 pages, 150 some artists, 700 images. Like, how can you go wrong with something like this? Uh, regardless of the kind of art you're working on, mm -hmm. I think urban sketching allows us all to to integrate the creativity into our daily lives because so many of us have other commitments and priorities and i think this book is going to go a long way to be able to uh, to empower us into the nooks and crannies of our lives oh that's that's absolutely the goal the goal i i hope that that happens so i want to i want to get to homework but before i do that mm -hmm. i want to talk to you about teaching mm. because you are doing that you're going to be doing some work down in auckland at the uh, the, the international symposium that's down there yeah and i'm wondering I love hearing people teach because I had the experience of teaching my first class uh, this past weekend. And welcome to the club. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and it was very daunting because I, I have some confidence in my work, but I don't have confidence in my teaching. And I think I've always said, because I think about it every time I draw or paint, is that being a teacher means that you've got to look at yourself differently and you have to break down your process. Mm -hmm. And the process that had, that you've learned is a matter of, this is just the way I do it, is something you have to look at differently. And I think looking at that differently impacts how you do it in the future. You know, you're an artist and you're a teacher, you're an author, um, you've got your, like, you've got so many kind of roles, but between author, or sorry, between teacher and artist, are, are the two interconnected now? Do you have to be both? Can you be an artist without being a teacher? Because I think the book is in some way teaching, but how intertwined is artist and teacher at this point? Well, for me, very, very connected. Um, I think one can be a good artist, but not a good teacher. Mm -hmm. I don't think, and, and actually there are a lot of those, <laughs> sadly. I think to be a teacher, you also have to have some mastery um, over the what what you're teaching. So I think... For me, I, I, a couple things. I remember the struggle of learning how to draw. And I think that's actually part of my motivation for teaching is because I remember how difficult it was to get, you know, you have to get your brain and your hand and your eye all, all coordinated. So there's like literally just the physical coordination of it. And it's, I mean, it's, it's difficult. It's a difficult process. It is truly a lifelong endeavor for anybody, even people who are, you know, watercolor masters. They're always learning and they're always trying to work through challenges. And, uh, uh, but another aspect of teaching for me, I find it's easier to talk about what I'm doing when I'm drawing. It's very hard 
to talk about what I'm doing when I'm painting. So for whatever reason, the more my brain is being taxed when I'm painting and teaching. That said, I'm an external processor. So a lot of what's in my head just naturally comes out of my mouth. And I think that's actually good for being a teacher who does demos. The problem is, you know, there may be, maybe I might say a little too much. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but, but it's a skill. It's like uh, chewing gum, riding a bike, and uh, talking and carrying groceries or something at the same time. You know, to be able to draw and talk about what you're doing at the same time is actually a, a skill you can develop. But I think it's probably easier for some than others. But if you, I suspect you're somebody who's probably going to be a natural teacher. Um, just in talking with you and, you know, hearing the questions you ask and even just the tech and setting up this, <laughs> this <laughs> talk, um, I suspect you're probably an excellent teacher because you're thinking about what the student is needing and what they're perceiving and you know, you're putting yourself in their shoes and uh, you're probably really good at breaking down the steps and communicating it, I would imagine. You're too kind. Thank you, Stephanie. That means a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I've done this long enough that I can spot people who are going to be good and people who are going to be not so good. <laughs> it is a different skill set, actually, teaching. Absolutely is. I've, I've only done one workshop around creativity. And I really enjoyed that. That was with uh, Mike Sibley, who's an artist, a graphite artist out of England. Mm -hmm. I did a three-day workshop. And that was wonderful. I learned so much from him. And it was small. It was like 10 of us or 12 of us. But I, I want to go back to something you said, because immediately I was like, oh, that's really weird and neat. Um, <laughs> your comment about that you can speak when you draw, but you can't when you paint. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, is, is drawing more tied to thought and is speaking... Does paint become the way you vocalize? And I just, I found that maybe those centers around vocalizing and painting are much closer together than drawing. And I just, I, I don't know anything about brain science, but I just found that really interesting that the vocalization becomes more challenging when painting. So I'm just wondering if those centers are somehow, as you say, like maybe it's drawing too much on one and you can't use the other one at that point in time. But I just found that really interesting that you're engaged that way. And I, I haven't tried teaching painting. I don't know if it would happen to me too. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I found that really, really neat. I'd, I'd never heard mm -hmm. that before. Oh, hmm. great. Something new. Um, yeah, I mean, that's my own experience. And it could just be the way my brain is wired. Mm -hmm. You know, there might be people who find the reverse, that it's harder to talk while they're drawing and easier to talk while they're painting. But, but for me, I have to really make sure I'm... Like whatever thoughts are popping into my head while I'm painting, I, I need to make sure they're coming out of my mouth. <laughs> so, you know, I, and now I'm picking up the French Ultramarine and I'm putting it here and I'm starting in this corner because I want to vary the color from left to right, top to bottom, you know, all of that. So I don't know. It would be interesting. This would be a good topic for that show on public radio, uh, The Hidden Brain. Right. <laughs> uh, Maybe he'll get wind of this and take it on someday. <laughs> yeah, that would be an, be an interesting exercise. <laughs> yeah, because I know that, like, if I'm if I'm working in studio, I can't listen to things to songs that have words in them. I can't uh, either. 
have that as well. Yeah, it's it's odd, isn't it? It's yeah, because my yeah. brain starts to become occupied by the song and singing along. I actually studied vo music in college. I had a voice minor, so I okay. really get involved in the song, <laughs> and it, it just doesn't like I can't can't do it at the same time. But I know there are people who paint and 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 listen to music at the same time, and it it influences their their ability to paint. Yeah, like I'll listen to music, but it won't be. It'll be kind of ethereal. Like there won't be words in it. I can't. It, it, but I can listen to tunes and and kind of you know even the kind of the white noise, uh, distant thunderstorm. I can listen to that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, or even if there's a tune, like I'll listen to Enigma, which was a big band in like mm -hmm. the late '80s, '90s, because their music's more ethereal. Mm -hmm. There's words in it, but I can abstract it away. Mm -hmm. But uh, I can't get into anything more than that. It just it breaks me. Yeah, so isn't that weird. funny? Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, someday somebody will do some research into that. You work in the medical field. You could yes. <laughs> figure out somebody to, to do that. Exactly. Yeah. I should, uh, I should see if I can get into a research study here, mm -hmm. and get some work done on it. Uh, yeah. So I always get to the point when I want to kind of empower the listener with something to do, something that they can take away from the podcast for them to be able to move their creative journey forward. Mm -hmm. And Stephanie, I'm wondering... What you would recommend is a bit of homework and exercise that people can do uh, as a matter of kind of challenging themselves, mm -hmm. bring them to the next level. Oh, my gosh. Well, there are so many things. Uh, one is, you know, if, you, if you're feeling like you want to get started, take a workshop. And, you know, they're, they're very compressed. You won't end up leaving that workshop with a mastery of watercolor, for example. But if you, if you have one or two takeaways that that influence what you do or inspire what you do, uh, it's totally worth it. And so, you know, take a workshop. I, I mean, I teach workshops all over and, and I love doing it. And I love travel workshops in particular. And another thing is to, to maybe get a friend and just go sit at a coffee shop and, you know, sketch your cup of coffee or just do it in your kitchen. I mean, during the pandemic, I I kept sketching and resketching one corner of my kitchen with a broken cabinet and <laughs> and and I, in different in different techniques in different ways with different um objectives in mind so uh just take one thing and draw it a bunch of times but a very specific exercise I have as well and in fact I I think I put it in the first book the understanding perspective book and that is to take a fairly large sheet of paper you know, like, an, uh, let's say, well, let's say an 11 by 17 piece of print paper that you s steal out of the tr the tray at the copy machine at Kinko's or something. <laughs> and, right. and you're going to freehand lines on it and take a, a marker or a pencil, whatever you use. Uh, Pentel sign pen works great. Or you can also just buy a pad of newsprint paper. And then you have a lot of paper and you don't have to steal it from Kinko's. And you're basically going to uh, hold, you know, turn it horizontally and make a series of parallel lines, starting at the top and working your way to the bottom. Parallel lines that go all the way across the page um, and space them a, maybe a quarter of an inch or a little bit more apart and, and fill the page. And watch what your hand does. Watch what you, what you look at. Watch what your what your eye is observing. Watch how you compensate for the natural curve of your arm. 
because it, you, it kind of curves at a radius, uh, you know, around your elbow being the, the, the point at the center of that arc. And so do numerous pages. It's something you literally do it while kind of watching TV or listening to TV or the radio or, or a podcast. And, um, and you do, do parallel lines. And then, then do another one where you're doing them vertically. So turn your paper, do those uh, parallel lines um, vertically. And you want to do long lines because you're training your hand like piano players or musicians, you know, playing scales on the piano. That's, that's the drawing equivalent of scales on a piano. And then, then comes the hard part. You have this large piece of paper, you put a dot in the middle, and then you start at the center and do radiating lines out all the way around in a circle. And you'll very quickly find which quadrants are challenging to you and which quadrants come easily. And then get another piece of paper, put the dot in the middle, and start from the outside edge and draw lines going in to that point. And uh, it's a really good exercise. I started doing this with my students at Parsons back in the 1980s. I mean, I got barely out of graduate school and immediately started teaching. And and this was one of the exercises I, I had every class do. And I had students coming up to me years later saying, I still practice my lines. <laughs> so it's just a great tool for sort of loosening up, for working on your hand-eye coordination and developing kind of a drawing skill and, and mastery. It'll be much easier to make smaller short lines in your sketchbook after you've done, you know, 20 pages of uh, these radiating lines or parallel lines. I love that. I love that because it is true. I I think that people's bodies tend to get in the way of things Mm -hmm. and decoupling the hand from the body and connecting it to the brain and rewiring it so that uh, you can compensate for that Mm -hmm. is, especially on working on larger pieces, I think that's a wonderful exercise. And I can see the benefits and I can see where the frustration would be in doing it. But I think that's a wonderful, wonderful idea. Yeah, I mean, it's literally if dribbling a basketball, you know, how many hours and hours and hours do, do people in sports practice just very basic uh, skills? And, and yet somehow for drawing, we're supposed to just like jump in and produce a great drawing. No warm up, no practice. Um, this is a way you can, you can practice and really develop your skill before you even draw anything that you see. Yeah, it's uh, that's a really good idea. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope if you're listening, you'll try it. Yeah, I hope so too. Send me an email if you do. <laughs> Absolutely, that would be uh, that would be fun. Thank you, thank you so much, Stephanie. The last thing I want to ask you is, where can people find you online? Oh my gosh, that's nice. Let's see. I have a blog that I pretty much ignore because I just have too much on my plate. I I apologize to anybody who signed up for it. There are not very many people who signed up to it because I, in fact. Don't post to it very much, but it's that's at drawingperspectives.com. On Instagram, which is the primary place I post, it's uh, Stephanie A. Bauer. So it's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E-A-B is in boy, O-W-E-R. And then on Facebook, I think I'm Stephanie A. Bauer Seattle, slash Seattle. Okay. So I do... I post pretty regularly 
to Instagram. And I have, let's see, this will air in May. I will have three weeks worth of sketches in New Zealand posted. In, at the end of May, I go to France to teach. Uh, then I come back for a week. I go to England, to Oxford to teach. Then I come back and I, I'm going to be traveling all over the place. So if you want to take a little armchair trip, follow me on Instagram and I'll take <laughs> you to about five countries <laughs> That's awesome. in the next few months. And when we go live, if that course you were talking about uh, that you were filming uh, isn't live, I will make sure that I include that in a future podcast in the intro. I'll mention that your, your course is live and we'll provide a link uh, to that. Thanks. I also have two courses on Craftsy. Okay, so I'll include links to those as well. As do a number of other urban sketchers, including Paul Heaston, Sherry Blaukoff, Suhita Shirodkar. We recorded them, I don't know, six, six years ago maybe, but they're excellent classes, all of them. They're evergreen. I mean, it's yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, I'll look younger and better and thinner, but <laughs> oh well. <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you, Stephanie, so much. This has been such a pleasure. I appreciate all your insight into urban sketching. I appreciate the backstory to share something um, so heartfelt with, with the listener. And understanding that connection is is what we do as artists. We tell stories. And as urban sketchers, we tell stories on the streets yeah. and the life around us. And it um, doesn't matter what you do as an artist, you're telling a story. And I appreciate, and the listeners appreciate you sharing that backstory because it's, it's meaningful. And um, I do appreciate your time on a weekend mm -hmm. to sit down with me because I'm sure you have a bunch of other things on your plate as well. And it's been such a wonderful time speaking with you. Well, thank you so much. I mean, you're a wonderful interviewer, I have to say. So thank you. this has been a total pleasure. And you even got me to, yeah, reveal that very personal story. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a big part of, of you know, how I got here. And, and uh, that's what you said you wanted to learn about. So by gosh, yeah. I did share it. But it's been super fun. You're super easy to talk with. And thank you so much. You probably could be a therapist or something. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I want to wish you all the best in 2023. We're going to be watching your Instagram and uh, following you and liking and commenting and appreciate all that you do, Stephanie. Thank you so uh, much. Thank you, Mike. This was a complete pleasure. Total pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Show notes, including links to everything Stephanie and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 98. If you enjoyed the show, please follow, share, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help surface the podcast for others to enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod. 